have your Bible, please turn to the fifth chapter of Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 5. Next Sunday we'll begin the first Sunday in May, a study through Ephesians. But I wanted to share this word that I hope is coming from the Lord. I believe it is from His Word with you. How many of you, uh, I've, I've, I'm sure I've talked about this before because it, it just is cemented in my mind as a, as a good example of certain things or illustration of it. How many of you remember dating your spouse? Just, just raise your hand if you're married. Remember dating all the, okay, all right, all right. Some of you were more excited than others. But isn't it funny how we are not honest when we date? We, the, the worst thing that could happen is that the person we're going out with would find out who we really are. Right? Especially if they find out too early. And so we do crazy things when we're dating to keep the other person from thinking that we're not good or that we're not what they want if we really like them. So guys do things they don't ever want to do. Right? If she says, I would like to spend the next 12 hours at one store looking at several pairs of boots. The guy will say, oh my gosh, I love you. Can we please do that? So let's go. And then the girl will say, you know, you would you like to watch college football the entire Saturday? And he can say yes. And she'll say, is there a pregame show on at 10 o'clock? We could start at 10 and then we can watch the noon game and the 3.30 game. And then we'll have dinner and we can watch the 8 o'clock game. And then when that's over, we can watch the late Pac-12 game since they play on the West Coast. And that game doesn't start until 11. Can we please... Spend the entire Saturday watching college football, which when you get married, that doesn't happen. All right. The husbands don't want to sit and buy shoes. You'll see the best part about Hobby Lobby is what is all the husbands that stay in their cars. When you park, there'll just be cars with husbands in them and the ladies will be in there shopping except me because I love it now. And then you have, you know, women, the wives do not want to spend. They might make the food or something, I guess, because we're too lazy to make it. So for football Saturday, but you try very hard not to be known, especially when you love somebody and want them or like somebody and want them to like you back. You try very hard to not be known, to not be seen, at least until you've built up enough capital that maybe they'd be willing to put up with your nonsense, right? We don't want to be seen and we don't want to be known for real at all. And we do this in church. We don't really want to be known here. We have an image that we want to project. And I I don't mean that's necessarily always evil that we're trying to hide and we wouldn't confess our sins to one another, but but we don't feel safe doing that often. So we're scared. So we're trying to put up a certain kind of front. I recently listened to a message by Sarah Condon called What Do We Fear the Most? And she talked about how God comes to us in salvation. He doesn't come to us angry, but with a giant's gentleness, as oxymoronic as that might sound. And that image stuck with me all week. I heard that message on Monday and couldn't get it out of my head. There are scenes all throughout Scripture of God meeting us in His glory and in His grace, in His power and in His gentleness. But the thing is, if we're honest, God meeting us where we are and as who we are is not very comforting. It's not something we would pick to stand as we are, everything uncovered, in the presence of a infinitely holy, majestic, perfect, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God. What would God do if He fully knew us? 
If He knew not everything that we do that's sinful, but everything that we think, everything that we do in secret, everything that we do in secret, that maybe not even our spouses know, or our best friends or family or parents know, what would God do if He knew us fully? What would God do if He knew who we really were? Certainly, surely, we'd be rejected. We'd be judged and condemned. We would be several things, but loved is not one that we would think would be. But in Jesus Christ, beloved, we are fully known. And we are fully loved. Let me pray and we'll walk through this text together. Father, thank you for your word, which is over us and in us, in Christ, by your spirit. Lord, help me this morning to convey this message clearly and correctly. Overshadow me, God, and fill me with your Holy Spirit for this text. And for the sake of your name and your glory and your people and their joy and their hope and peace, please open every ear to hear and understand. And we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read verses 1 through 11 of Luke chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he, Jesus, asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So in Luke's gospel, Jesus is beginning to call his disciples. And he does so in Luke with this Miracle to establish his authority on the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Gennesaret. And Luke, he sees two empty boats because the fishermen had left them. They're washing their nets, so their boats are just sitting there. Jesus invites himself onto one of the boats, Simon's boat to be exact, and begins to teach people the Word of God from the boat. So imagine, we don't know how long this went on, Peter and James and John, business partners in the fishing industry, listening to Jesus as they wash their nets as they end their work day. Jesus came to them. He came to us. The light that gives life is breaking into the world right here in the middle of a work day. It's just another day. When Jesus is done teaching, he invites the three men back into their boats to try again at catching fish. But Peter tells him in verse 5, Lord, we did, right? He says we toiled all night. And took nothing. These are professional fishermen. 
But at your word, I will let down the nets. This is a funny moment, if we want to call it that. This is not great faith in action. That's not what's happening here. At your word, at your great word, we will let down the nets and something great will happen. No, he's, you can tell by his response, they're fully expecting empty nets again. They, it's, it's embarrassing probably to them. They don't want to make Jesus look silly. Maybe that's what they're thinking. Simon, who will be called Peter, does not believe Jesus can do anything. In fact, for Peter, Jesus and his truth are something completely separate from his work. And they have nothing to do with his work. Jesus isn't a fisherman. What's he doing? This is an interruption. Scripture does not teach us that we need to have a certain amount of faith for God to work for Christ to come near, like He's out there, and if we just believe enough, maybe we can pull Him close enough, and He'll listen. And if we take our one step, He'll take the rest. We, we made that up. We made that up. Scripture does teach that Jesus Christ intervenes when there's little to no faith. You, you have examples of this. What about the man, the crazy story in Mark, of the man that's let down through the roof by his friends because he's disabled and Jesus heals him for the sake of the faith of his friends, not even the man's faith, right? Because Peter basically says, listen, we, we've already tried that and it didn't work, but we'll try it again. That, that's a sacred way of saying, that's dumb, but we'll do it, right? That's what they're saying, I think. And it turns out in verses 6 and 7 that this teacher, Jesus Christ, however, is the Lord of the sea and everything in it. There are so many fish in verses 6 and 7 and verse 9 that their nets are breaking. In fact, the weight of the fish is so great it's sinking their boats. This is very interesting. William and Rochelle Hauser's article on academia.org from December 10th, 2017 says that if you take into account the dimensions of boats from approximately the same time and location as the text gives us here, it would have taken approximately... 62,692 pounds of fish to sink two of these boats. Then, if you look at the wage and commodity price law of this period, this catch would have given each of the fishing partners 24 and a half to 36 and a half years worth of salary in one catch, 12 to 18 years at skilled labor rates, depending on the quality of the fish. And I'm going to guess they were good fish. And if you took modern financial advice into account, one would have needed in this time period about 25 years worth of expenses and savings in order to just live entirely from the interest. Do you know what all that means, beloved? The weight of the fish, the economics, that these men are out of the fishing business. They don't have to launch another single boat or drop down another single net. They and their families are going to be just fine. Because Jesus is passing by. Because Jesus was in the boat. And he makes all provision, beloved. So Jesus says, in the second part of verse 10, do not be afraid. He says this to Simon. From now on, you will be catching men. I, I, just, I love the economic aspect that like, yes, this I took care of this for you. From now on, you'll work for me. From now on, we'll let down our nets to catch people, which is what the word men can mean here as well. So 
we have this beautiful picture. You have Jesus telling Simon Peter not to be afraid. There's nothing to worry about. Nor, as we'll see in a moment, is there anything for him to be afraid of. And we read in verse 11, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They could, for one thing. So Jesus didn't come to save fish, apparently, but he came to save people. So he isn't here to do amazing things like this as an end in and of themselves. He's here to get people to save them, to redeem them, to forgive them, to adopt them into the family of God, to bring the kingdom. And if Jesus can do this with fish, if that calculation and weights and measurements are correct, and he can pull 62,292 pounds of fish without even saying anything, just thinking it in his mind, what can he do if the gospel is the net that he's throwing out, that he's dragging across the world as another parable, or as a parable shows in another gospel, I believe. But you wake up a fisherman, your life is going in that direction, that's how you think, that's your identity, that's how you take care of your family, it's who you are, and you go to bed in one day, and you're a missionary for Jesus Christ. You're in his inner circle. And by the way, you're a sinner who had no faith in Jesus whatsoever, didn't ask for this, In fact, when Jesus shows his life-changing power, Peter doesn't want to capitalize on it. Peter wants him to get away from him. Peter wanted Jesus to get away. In verse 8, why? Why is this the response to this amazing power? And we've seen it before, something like this in Scripture. Just one example is in Isaiah 6. When the prophet Isaiah encountered God enthroned in his temple and just the train of his robe filled the temple. So just the fabric of the train of his robe, picture that in your mind, fills the temple. You're just surrounded by it and it's just the train of his robe. It was terrifying. It was terrifying. Isaiah had no idea what God was showing him at first, what God was going to do. But he clearly, by his response, didn't think that God was for him. That's not the impression human beings get when they're brought face to face with the glory of God. It's not like, this is great. This is nice. I'll just, this is perfect. I see you, you see me, all's well. And the amazing thing is, you find in the Gospels that Isaiah was beholding the glory of God in the person of his son, The Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is in the boat with Peter. That's who Isaiah was actually seeing or able to see with his eyes. This same Jesus that's in Luke 5. And what did Isaiah say in Isaiah 6 when he saw the glory of God revealed? Woe is me. Woe to me. Condemnation on me. Judgment on me. I am undone. That's a word that means I have been seen and I have been pulled apart. I have nothing to stand on here. I'm undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I have no business whatsoever. I don't belong here. I'm undone. Get me out of here, so to speak. If God sees me, he'll destroy me. 
he almost sounds like Peter in Luke 5. Go away from me, Lord. Peter knows something about Jesus in this moment. And his response is not to hug him. His response is, you have to get away from us. Right? If I can tease that out a little bit, right? I, you, you don't understand. We're, I'm a fisherman. Right? Like you, you don't, you, I have no business being near anybody that can do something like that. Get, get away from me. Because again, when humanity encounters God in His glory, what will become immediately, immediately obvious to us is that we shouldn't be there. We shouldn't be seeing it. We know, and all of us know right now, even those in this audience that right now are rejecting Jesus Christ for their salvation, what bothers us so much is that we all know He sees us. We all know we have to give an account. We all know that life doesn't just end in death. If we're being honest, we can feel it. God has written His law on our hearts. We know we will have to give an account. And so maybe the sinful life in part is a life of Peter saying, get away from me. I am a sinful man. And by the way, many people thinking today, as they always have, I don't want you to be around me. I want to do what I want to do. And if you're here, I can't. Consider all 12 disciples later in Luke's gospel in 8 verse 22 in a boat again on this same sea. This time there's a storm raging. The boat is once again filling with water. It's once again threatening to sink. They wake Jesus because the Lord of the sea is using this as an opportunity to take a nap. So he's sleeping and he gets up and the text says he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. And in Luke 8.25 they were afraid of the storm. But now they're really afraid. Now they're terrified after Jesus did what he did. And the sea becomes like glass. What is it about God in all his glory, or even just some of his glory, that is so immediately terrifying or unsettling or threatening? Could it be that God in all his glory is a giant with which we cannot reckon and have no power to fight? None whatsoever. What if it's too much? What if he's just too much? Could it be that the scariest thing in all the universe would be to discover that God sees us and he knows us completely? Everybody in this room right now, everybody downstairs, every little child downstairs, he knows everything infinitely, exhaustively at the same time. God doesn't see what other people see. He sees that also, but what other people see is only what we show them or show them by accident, right? God, there is never a moment when God doesn't know where you are, what you're thinking, what you're doing, why you're doing it, why you're saying it. That's too much. Right? How, how, how could I become a Christian and align myself with this God if I'm that known, that discovered, that undone, that open. Why would I ever come to that? The, the problem with the world is that we judge too much anyway, right? The most popular verse 
in the world used to be for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now it's judge not lest ye be judged. So why would I give myself to this God who's looking at me, obviously turning his nose up at me, because I would, and why would I stop doing the things I want to do? We spend our whole lives trying to hide who we really are, or at least the worst parts about us. We scheme and we come up with all these machinations and, and plots to hide ourselves and only reveal what we want to at any certain time. We even plan out how we're going to say things in an argument or all these things. We just, we don't, we can't be known. We won't be loved. We won't be accepted. We'll only be judged because what's there is not lovable. And we hide mainly, tragically, don't we, from those who love us. Right? From those who love us. It's, it's, we're, we're very strange people. If, if the people that loved us really knew us, maybe they love us because they don't really know us. Maybe we wouldn't be accepted. Surely we wouldn't be loved. That's something entirely different altogether. Beloved, I'm, to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not aware of anything in my life disqualifying me from ministry, but I wonder if you'd want me as your pastor if you knew everything about me. If you knew how I think sometimes and how I am sometimes. I mean, if, if I, I talk about being a sinner, but what if you saw the sins I commit? Right? What, what if you knew who I really was? And again, I'm not saying I'm living a secret life and if you knew it, I'd get fired. That's, that's not what I mean. I mean, if, if you knew me like well, my wife knows me or like, I mean, she's, my wife and I are one flesh. I don't think there's anything we don't know about each other. What if you knew me like she did, right? Or what if you knew me more than she did? What if you sat down with my kids and say, does your dad ever raise his voice? Right? Does he ever punish you and it's, it's not just, it's, it's not right? Or are all your thoughts pure, Tony? Is every intention of your heart godly? Right? Would, would you still want me to be your pastor if you knew everything about me? And I'm not scratching the surface of everything about me in those examples. Right? Peter knew in this moment in verse 8, as mountains of fish are sinking his boats, if this Jesus can do this, he knows everything about me. He's going to be able to see everything in me. He's going to know everything I don't want maybe even his wife to know. Right? Oh no, I'm seen. He knows he saw the power firsthand, and Peter knows. I mean, what would you immediately think, maybe? Peter knows that, look, Jesus could end me right here and now. I didn't believe that. I, I talked to him like he was dumb. I didn't believe. We, I thought we were going to pull up empty nets again, and I know fishing better than he does. I know the sea. It's my livelihood. And this teacher that they're hearing wonderful things about, yes, absolutely, but this is different. So maybe Peter's thinking, I'm not about to be an object lesson. 
right? For Jesus to pick him up and throw him into the water. See everybody? This is what happens when you don't have enough faith in me. Right? This is what happens when you're too sinful to be around me. Look at this clown. Right? We fear being shamed for what we've done, even when we're guilty. There's nothing more scary than being pointed at by a group and saying, it's you, you're guilty, you're bad, right? Even if you really are. And Jesus is not a giant in the world. He is the giant. There isn't... Jesus as a giant means nothing else that's a giant is a giant. But instead, he says to this fearful and unbelieving sinner of whom he does know everything, even that this man will eventually deny three times that he even knows him and curse him in it. No, no, don't don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching people. I want you with me. Peter, I love you. I'm going to die for all of your sins. Every single one of them. Everything that makes you want me to get away from you in this moment, I'm going to bear all of God's wrath for it. I'm going to satisfy it. You come with me. You belong to me. And when the darkest moment of your life maybe comes, I will have already prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And you'll come back to me. And I'll take you. Beloved, if Jesus Christ isn't like this, there's no hope for any of us. Our only hope is a giant that could crush us without even lifting his pinky. Turns out that God in all his glory, all of it, manifest on display, doesn't look like on earth thunder and fire and earthquakes but when he is revealed in person God in all his glory full of grace and truth looks like Jesus in him resides bodily Colossians 1 tells us all the fullness of God dwells in Christ in bodily form all of God's grace and truth reside in a person. The glory of God resides in a person. The righteousness of God resides in a person. And Jesus is for us. All that's true. And all, all of it is seen. And He's for us. Jesus did not go to the cross not knowing what we were actually like. And so when he died, he couldn't have possibly died for the worst parts of me. He, he was dying for the idea that maybe I would come to him. No, no, no. While you were actively spitting in his face with your sin, he was dying for you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the worst version of me. The worst version of me. 
I, I, the gentleman we had here a few weeks ago, Daniel Emery Price, said in a talk yes, uh, Friday that Jesus saw my best day, me at my best, and said, I'm going to have to die for this guy. Even his best won't. It's, it's not enough. The giant is gentle, beloved, to those who need him. Gentle. We, again, we naturally, I think, believe that if God could see us, he would not love us. Because that's the way it normally is in real life, isn't it? That's why we have broken relationships in our past. Probably because when the real me came out, or when what I really wanted came out, or who I really am, or what I'm really like came out, I lost relationships. I lost friendships. Right? That's, that's one of the very unsettling things about being a pastor. Okay? At one moment, this couple or guy or lady love you and they support you and they stand behind you and all that stuff, right? And then you mess up or you don't do it right and that relationship is over. Right? And I'm not saying it's always their fault either. I mean, I, I look back and see the things I have done that ruined relationships that probably would have helped me so much as a pastor. I mean, that's what life is. It's, it's when I was fully known, when what, what I really wanted and who I really am and what I'm really like, when that came out, I lost people. They didn't want me at my worst. They were fine with the best version of me, but they didn't want me at my worst. And if, if God is holy and perfect and there's no sin in Him and He sees everything, He's the last person I want around me and abiding in me by His Spirit every day. 24-7? I can't get earth people to put up with me 24-7. Again, I'm one flesh with my wife. I love her with everything that I am. And I'm telling you right now, she could use a break sometimes. Right? And so could my kids. You folks, you, you probably see the best me there is for a couple hours a week. And again, I'm not... I don't want you to think like, what is he doing? He's a sinner. That, that's, that's what I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I mean, even family. Even family. You talk about pain. When your blood family says, nah, I don't want anything to do with you. Like then who will, who will love us? If, if my mom and dad disown me, I would, I mean, thankfully, I'm married and I have a wife and kids, but like if, if your, your own brother or sister disown you, don't want anything to do with you because the real you came out at some point, or even if it was just in weakness, you weren't even being mean, you just, they didn't like what they saw and so they're gone and they won't reconcile. And, and we're supposed to dwell with God as his beloved children? There's a, there, there are steps we could all take in our lives this afternoon that could end our marriages, end our best friendships, right? I mean, and really, who would blame people for disowning us sometimes? Like maybe, maybe we did do something pretty awful, right? Maybe it is our fault that there's this rift. Or this fractured relationship that was so great once and now it's over. 
right? I just I look back over my life, and that's that's part of being in the family of God. And I don't mean to say that like in a negative way about us. I just mean, how could it be that Christ has redeemed you and redeemed me, and we can't even be in the same room with each other? So if if that's the way it is. If, if making decisions that are best for my family and I, or, or, or doing what is, uh, God calls me to do, or doing what I want to do, if those kinds of things are going to separate people from me, why would I want to be seen for everything I am, especially by God? And some of the things we do to those who love us are horrendous. What about if what you do to God is horrendous? If God is holy and perfect, then my greatest fear is being fully known. Because if I was fully known, I couldn't possibly be fully loved. Then my only response to God is to run or to fake it. He has to get away from me. So as people who don't yet, as people who don't yet believe in Jesus as their Savior, right? We run from Him in fear. That comes out as rejection and unbelief or maybe cynicism, atheism, apathy, agnosticism, those kinds of things. You're, you're, you're admitting there's a God that you don't want to believe in when you're an atheist. You just hate, you hate him, right? That's. But even often as those who do believe in Jesus, we run from him in our self-righteousness. Honestly believing or at least hoping that by our performance, or our attitude, or our acts of service, maybe the real us will be covered up and not seen, or maybe successfully cornered off somewhere, and God will just kind of deal with us according to the good things that we do, and forget about all the rest. And so, even as a Christian, sometimes we can live this life where we feel estranged. It's like there's an awkwardness between us and God, because we're not living as perfectly as we know the Scripture calls us to. There are commands, and commands are to be obeyed. And often we're not obeying them, or or even if we are obeying some, we're not obeying others, and so we just constantly feel estranged. Why? Because He sees us. Because after all, if He really knew the real us, He wouldn't have died for us. There's no way anybody is that benevolent. Come on. He wouldn't have forgiven us, so we just we keep trying to cover up if we don't know Him. And we keep trying to cover up, tragically, sometimes, even if we do. But hear me, fellow sinners. The giant is gentle to us. And the only way we're ever really going to face this fear and conquer it is if we truly believe the Gospel. Maybe our deepest fear is that God would fully know us. And in fully knowing us, we would be rejected. Could you imagine God looking at you and saying, depart from me. I don't know you. Get away from me, for I am holy. That's how the story should read. That's how all the stories should read. Not us saying, you need to get away from me. But him saying, why am I here? Why am I around you? Do you know how impure and unclean you are? Can you imagine him looking you in the eye with you completely exposed? 
and turning up his nose? What other response could there be? We are appalled at our own depravity. We're more appalled at other people's depravity. Jesus is never surprised by our depravity. And somehow in our crazy minds, we're much more comfortable confessing our sins privately to him than we even are to each other in community. So how does it get flipped around that when it comes to forgiveness, oh, I'll tell God everything. I'm not telling my brother and sister anything. Why? Because we hope that he will look over it and we know that they won't. So we just, we, we don't have an identity. We're just afraid and awkward and so you, and the, the, the trouble is you can't be obedient when you're afraid because if you're not obeying out of faith, if you're not submitting to his commands out of faith, but out of the flesh, we're sinning. So if we, we have to get past this fear that we're not accepted. Be our worst fear come to life for God to come down here. And yet the gospel says that we must be fully known so that we can actually be fully forgiven. Fully forgiven. What Jesus is saying in the gospel is, listen, I see it all. And I sent my son, or Jesus is saying, I came to take it all. Therefore, I accept you, and I love you, and you belong to me. Doesn't it get old feeling like a loser Christian all the time? And I'm not talking about self-esteem and all that stuff. I'm saying to always feel like we're just, we, we're not in Christ enough to, to have an ongoing personal relationship with Him. It's like awkwardness at a family reunion. We're in the family, but there's beef and strife, and I just, I can't get close to Him. No, you, you can't. I can't. But he came close to us. God didn't stop. Jesus is not ceasing to be holy here in order to let Peter get close. His holiness envelops his grace. That's who God is. There's no divided identity in God. Holiness includes his love and his grace and his mercy in the purest indefinable ways we understand those terms. He is those things. It's finished, beloved. I want you to believe that. And it doesn't, look, it's not me saying it doesn't matter what you've done or it doesn't matter who you are or it doesn't matter what you're like. It's not me telling you that. Jesus has taken all of it, all our guilt, all our shame, all of our transgressions, all our sins. Beloved, they are paid for. It is finished. I say it to you again. You are free. You are free to be exactly who God says you are. You're free as you are, forgiven, justified. To love your neighbor and love your enemy and serve them and serve your brothers and sisters, even if it kills you. You are a born again, baptized, adopted child of God. You belong to him. No one can snatch you from his hand. He knows you're weak. He knows you're of the dust. He knows you're frail. Go honor him. You're free. Live for him. 
You can't lose. You can't mess it up. You can't make him change his mind. He's beautiful. That's why you write new songs all the time, right? Because it just keeps getting better. He just keeps getting better, and he never wasn't the best. (laughs) It's over. The sin problem has been addressed. It's over. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about doing good works. We're not talking about atoning for your sin. We're not talking about your assurance. We're not talking about what you can gain and get God to like about you. We're talking about now that you're free, now that your sin is covered, why don't you just go with Him? Just go with Him. He loves you. God loves you. You're not the black sheep. He's not annoyed by you. Everything about you was nailed to a cross 2,000 years ago. So don't be afraid. From now on, we'll be catching people. What happened? Was Peter all clean? No sin? Had gone to seminary? There on the boat? Like, no, no, no. Just, you come close to me, I'll always bring stuff up with your net. God doesn't casually or naively stroll into the seedy hotel rooms of the world or back seats of cars or AA meetings or backroom business dealings and shady behaviors. doesn't just casually walk in there and bring to the well-scrubbed hands of people in church meetings that are vying for power and vying for their own preferences. He doesn't, where, where discord and bitterness fester, which the Lord hates. He doesn't walk in there shocked. What? what? You're like this? This is who you are? I thought you had me fooled. I can't believe you're like this. You know what? Never mind. Forget it. I take it all back. Forget it. I mean, everybody has a breaking point, right? The ones that love us the most have a breaking point. No, beloved, he swoops in like a hero. Sees us fully and instantly says that in Christ, all is forgiven. We're completely reconciled and righteous and justified. No strings attached. He knows our sins. He knows our fears. He knows our hurts and our shame and our guilt and our regrets. Especially the justified regret. He sees how we have hurt others and how we have been hurt by others. And yet when he sees us beaten and bloody on the side of the road, he doesn't pass by. He doesn't turn away and not look. He picks us up and puts us on his shoulders and pays everything for us and makes us well. He doesn't reject us when He sees us. He doesn't scoff at us in disgust and walk away. He doesn't wash His hands of us. Jesus got His hands, ran through with nails for us. And beloved, it is only when we're fully seen by God 
that we have our real purpose as human beings. Peter thought he was just a fisherman. No, no, he, he was a disciple of Jesus Christ until the end of his days. And the stories he could tell us now. It is only when we're fully seen by him that we know our real purpose. And instead of anger and guilt and shame, we're met by the gentle giant. Jesus knows you. It's true. Everything about you. Everything we've become absolute ninjas about being able to hide. And he, he, he doesn't act like it's not there. And that's why he accepts us. No, 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 no. That's, a, that's a, a fragile love. Because at any time, that stuff could be pulled back out. You know what? No, never mind. No. When we call out to Him, He forgives us. When we believe, when we receive His Word, all of that is taken out of the way. This is real love. It's not something God is pretending isn't there. And as long as he doesn't look at it or we don't give him a reason to remember it, we'll be okay. No, no, no. It was seen. It was dealt with. It was nailed. He was risen from the dead. It's done. It's done. We're sitting here today thinking maybe I never want to sin against this Jesus again. That's a holy thought. You might make it the next five minutes. If you have to wait long for your food, you're not going to make it through lunch. Or you have to wait long at a restaurant. He sees it all. And he took it all to the cross with him. And it was nailed there for you and for me. Once and for all. You are fully known by God. And you are fully loved by God. Accept his forgiveness. Accept his love for you. Christian and unchristian. Believe the gospel. It's true. It's true. 